Hello everyone, it's January 22nd, 2019. This week, or last week, technically, Chang'e entered lunar night. Seven more days to go, and we have a great data relay about exotic propulsion. Nothing too crazy, we're keeping it scientific, but science is cool. You already knew that. Alright, lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 194 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Well, my semester started last week, so my head is spinning right now. (laughs) (laughs) How many classes? Three. But what's crucial about this semester is the first time I picked up a physics. And so hopefully I'll be able to answer more physics questions or like give more of a physics <laughs> angle on these things. Cause it's, it, it had been over a decade since I had taken a class that actually had physics in it, you know? And so that stuff will atrophy when you don't, you know, actively use it. You do astronomy, so there's no mm-hmm. physics involved in that. I mean, there has to be. Yeah, so it's 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 all like like implicit, I guess. You know, whenever mm-hmm. uh, yeah, in in the actual research, most of like most of the research is a matter of coding, and then the physics behind kind of spectra. But from the paper's perspective, you know. I don't really care about the light interacting with, you know, atoms and then making it to a telescope and how it interacts with the detector, um, you know, and all that. I just care about like, you know, this is the image and I've calibrated that image. And so what does it tell me? You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. But I, I, I'm really kind of, it, it's going to be tough, but I'm excited for it because it'll feel good to have that back under my belt again. Banter complete. Let's move on to this yeah. in space registry. <laughs> All right, yeah, so we can um, move on, and we avoided any sous vide talk this week, so that's Yay! It. <laughs> All right, so this week in Spaceflight History, uh, who are our winners, and what was that clue again? Okay, so the clue was clean up on aisle 49, and I said you, you get extra points if you know why I referred to aisle 49. So our winners are Chairboy Law Loving, Thomas Swaggerty, and Mike Carper. And we have a full credit winner, Jason Friesen, who knew exactly why it was aisle 49. This week in Spaceflight History is the 24th of January, 1978. It was the day that Cosmos 954 decayed. I have written down here over Russia, but it was actually over Canada. Uh, it was headed towards Russia, but it it, it was uh, flying northwest or uh, northeast over Canada. So anyway, um, Cosmos 954 launched on September 18th, 1997. It was uh, a Rorsat uh, satellite. Well, okay. So so the the Russian name, David, can you pronounce this for me right here? <laughs> I think I got the stress on the right syllables. There you go. Yeah. So, so, uh, USA, US hyphen A, uh, for short, uh, it means a controlled active satellite. We all know what Sputnik means. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was also known as, uh, the West called it uh, a radar ocean reconnaissance satellite or Rorsat. And, uh, these Rorsats, um, there were, there were a bunch of them. I didn't, count them up. I probably should have. Um, but they uh, were there to monitor ships on the ocean, um, you know, just to watch both enemy fleet movements, uh, as well as just cargo fleet movements. Um, they used active radar to ping these boats, which is crazy. Um, I don't know if we use active radar that much these days, but uh, they wanted to be in a low Earth orbit, and to power their active radar, they needed solar panels large enough to just increase their drag coefficient to, to the point where it wasn't practical. Um, so instead, they used nuclear reactors. The first of them, or most of them, used a BES-5 uh, nuclear reactor. Uh, they carry 50 kilograms of uranium-235. 
that's uh, 110 pounds. Uh, I think uh, Chairboy on Twitter guessed that IL-49 referred to 49 pound or 49 uh, kilograms of uranium, but it was which it 50, might oh it was 50. Okay, it's 50 kilograms, Almost. not 49. <laughs> but I really, really appreciate fudging the numbers. I think that was a good <laughs> a good try. And so the B uh, the BES five nuclear reactor put out two kilowatts of power. Um, later on, the Rorsats there were. The last two that were launched uh, had topaz reactors, um, and those put out six kilowatts of power. And then what, what's really cool is, you know, having a bunch of uranium in orbit is not fun, especially in low Earth orbit where it's eventually going to decay. So what they decided to do, the uh, <laughs> the spice, the Keystone spice satellites, remember they, uh, was it Keystone? Keystone was the overall project name. I forget what the actual satellites were, but they had retro rockets and they would drop film packages down mm -hmm. into the atmosphere right well, right right was it the corona satellite corona thank you so uh the corona satellites uh fired uh retro rocket they had a little film package and they would fire retro rockets on that package and deorbit it well uh Rorsat did the exact opposite they uh, when they were ready to retire the spacecraft they would decouple the reaction core or the the power plant and then it had rockets that would fire it into a higher orbit. Well, unfortunately, that didn't work on two previous Rorsats and as well on Cosmos 954. That that package failed. So remember, it, it launched uh, September 18th. Well, by December, it was obvious even to people in the West that something was wrong. It was changing its uh, orbital altitude uh, in a manner described as erratic. <laughs> So, uh, you know, it's not clear what was going on, but obviously they were struggling to control the vehicle. And Russia actually let the U.S. know, hey, we tried to fire our, uh, you know, the retirement package, <laughs> tried to tried to put the reactor into a high orbit uh, where it wouldn't decay. But, you know, they said eh, it didn't work. So at, at some point, we're basically watching this vehicle getting ready to reenter. So it was launched in December. By January, uh, it was beginning to decay. So uh, January 24th at 11.35 UTC, it actually completed its reentry. Um, it was on a northeasterly track, like I mentioned. The, the satellite was on a 65-degree inclination. So, you know, once you're very far north, you know, you're much farther away from 65 degrees. You're beginning to move uh, more east-west than north-south. Um, but it's, you know, kind of on an east-northeast kind of track. And uh, it re-entered over Canada, very, very high up. And it spread, well, before I get to how far it spread over, <laughs> when they designed Warsat, they believed that the entire vehicle would burn up on re-entry. If something happened, it'd re-enter, it'd burn up, no problem. Well, that didn't happen. Um, and in fact, the power plant broke up very early during re-entry, which means that all of the nuclear material can spread out over a large area, you know, as, as it gets buffeted and as the, the debris cloud spreads. This debris was spread out over 600 kilometers or 370 miles. They described the debris swath 
as going from the Great Slave Lake to Baker Lake. It's a huge area, right? And so it, you know, basically spread out over the Northwest Territories up into Nunavut. And it actually, um, the debris swath was wide enough that there was actually debris in Saskatchewan and I believe in Manitoba as well. But, uh, you know, luckily, very, very far north. Um, you know, up by the Northwestern Passage. So it's very lucky this re-entered over uh, a very sparsely inhabited area, but it you know, easily could have come down pretty much anywhere on the planet. I believe this is the first nuclear reactor to re-enter over land. Um, there were a number of other nuclear reactors that re-entered, but they all went straight into the ocean. A Rorsat actually broke up during launch one time there was a launch failure and actually fell into the ocean just north of Japan. But uh, that, that didn't make it all the way to orbit, I don't believe. So we have this situation where we have radioactive material spread out over land for, I, I believe, the first time. So Canada and uh, the U.S., well, primarily Canada, the U.S. helped out on a recovery effort. They named it Operation Morning Light, which is very sunny and uh, positive. <laughs> and they covered an area of 128,000 square kilometers or 48,000 square miles. And the recovery effort lasted from January 24th, 1978 to October 15th, 1978. So that's pretty much an entire year. They did it in two phases, but I wasn't able to figure out what the difference between the two phases were. In that time, they found 12 large pieces. 10 of them were radioactive. Um, they were able to find these pieces by doing air surveys, but also on foot survey, where they walked around with Geiger counters looking for radioactive material. Wow. Um, in the end, they were able to find only 1% of the fuel that was contained in the satellite. Most of the radioactive pieces emitted about 1.1 sieverts per hour, um, but at least one of them uh, was much more radioactive and put out 4.6 sieverts per hour, which is enough to kill somebody in a couple hours worth of close exposure. Treaties say that, you know, if, if you crash a satellite, you are responsible for it. So Canada added up all the math of doing recovery efforts as well as, you know, future projected future costs and said, okay, uh, you owe us $6 million, which I think is pretty generous. I, yeah, I don't think that's bad. a lot yeah. of money. For raining radioactive material all over my, your country. <laughs> raining radioactive material, and like they had people out there without hazard suits mm. because they didn't want to spook the locals, right? Like This is how, how much attention Canada paid to this, is they didn't even want to like startle people. <laughs> and for all of that, they said, yeah, six million ought to cover it. Um, I have an exact number, but I don't think it's going to be fun to read that. In the end, Russia did pay Canada reparations, uh, but it was only $3 million. So half of what Canada wow. uh, mm -hmm. asked for, which is pretty sucky. Um, and then, of course, Russia did one other thing, which is they added a backup disposal system to Rorsat uh, or to their future Rorsat launches, which I believe significantly increased uh, their reliability. I don't think that any of the updated Rorsats uh, had had a failure of the disposal system. And the Canadians were, I guess, they just had to accept that. Yep. They only charged them $6 million. They, that, right. Yeah, Canadians are very polite. Because <laughs> I think if it happened in America, it would not be such a low figure. It would have been half a billion dollars plus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, trade or uh, uh, like tariffs and that kind of thing. 
So in the show notes, I will have a link to a very interesting Wikipedia page titled List of Nuclear Power Systems in Space. Um, and it includes uh, the fate of each one, whether it's still operational, whether it's retired in orbit, or whether it crashed uh, back on Earth. And, you know, of course, a couple of them crashed into the moon and some of them are orbiting the sun. But it's an interesting list. It's a very long list. And I guess just more generally, do you remember which uh, which episode number we had our data relay on energy generation for spacecraft? And we touched on this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dennis, this is uh, episode 178 is the one where we talked about power generation. All right. So you, you have a clue for next week? Yeah. So no sous vide talk this week, but the clue for next week in 1961 is... That ham cooked faster than I expected. Next week in 1961, that ham cooked faster than I expected. All right. Well, if anyone out there knows what that uh, culinary reference is in reference to, <laughs> uh, you see, tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Chang'e 4 enters lunar night. This will be, I, at least I imagine, what, 14 days, right? Because that's how long a, a lunar night is. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. 14 days of night. And by the time this episode comes out, it will be seven days after sunset. <laughs> so I was going to say, you can think about it. As we're recording, it's a full moon out. So obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Dark. Yeah, right. There's uh, going to be an eclipse tonight. So by definition, it is a lunar or it's a full moon. We record two days before the episode comes out, so you can understand why we didn't talk about this last week. So Chang'e for the lander itself, it has an RTG, so it can do operations during the night. It'll go into like a semi-sleep mode, like a partial hibernation, um, where it won't do much, but it will still take soil temperature measurements. You notice I said take soil temperature measurements and not heat its bio-experiment. Yeah, the bio-experiment is dead. I don't know why it didn't occur to me that it wasn't necessarily going to last through the night. I guess I assumed that they were going to have good enough power to be able to to heat it overnight but they didn't so as the sun or as yeah as the sunset on the moon the temperature in the bio experiment dropped and everything inside of it is now well and thoroughly dead by the you know by the time we're recording this much less by the time we release this episode evidently they were having some trouble with the temperature control and so early reports i found said that it could run for potentially 100 days the bio experiment but uh it made it uh you know, a whopping nine days. And so uh, I guess at some point they, they actually actively powered it down and turned it off once they realized that they weren't able to control the temperature themselves. They did that from the ground. Yeah. Here. And, and I had heard that on Twitter, but I wasn't able to find like an article I could link to. So I wasn't. So hmm. so the intention was to actually keep the experiment up and running through the lunar night or not? Well, yeah, that, that's so. what they had initially said, right? But mm-hmm. like it didn't. And then there were a couple of fleeting reports about some sort of power management failure. But like, I kind of wonder if they just said, oh, no, we're, you know, oh, it can, in theory, it could run for 100 days. But in reality, they're just like, no, we're just going to shut it down after nine days. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a quote from uh, one of the uh, professors that designed the experiment. And he was, uh, this was actually happening before the lunar night. Uh, here's the quote. Though we have two temperature controlling plates, the temperature was still above 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit around 1030 a.m. on the moon. And so they were actually running too hot at that point. I guess mm. they kind of... Mm. Okay, so that does sound like a failure. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad that my uh, kind of cynical attitude that you know it was intended to be shut down early is, is incorrect. <laughs> 
Um, one other thing, this really, really bugs me on the internet. There are lots of people reporting and tweeting that, um, that the cotton seeds germinated, which they did, they did germinate, but they are attaching a photo of a relatively large sprout inside the chamber. That's not on the moon. That is a photo of the earth side control experiment that's running on the same time scale. So um, they, they definitely did germinate and you can see them in one of the photos, but if you see a photo, make sure that you're not being confused by the, you know, quote unquote, fake news version <laughs> Um, I, I think I don't think it's intentional. I think this was, you know, just hey, you know, it's it's tough to label things properly when there's so much hype and everything. Right, and once it's out there, um, you and, can't really. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, one person does it, and, and that's mm -hmm. it. Uh, so that's the lander U two the second. Let's uh, call yeah. it <laughs> for clarity. <laughs> So U U2 the second has uh it is intended to fold in its its solar rays but I wasn't able to find any confirmations that that had happened. So I'm going to say presumably it's folded in its solar rays uh and I kind of imagine it imagine it like hunkering down uh with its radiothermal heater kind of you know wrapping itself around it like a cat. <laughs> And uh, it, it will, in theory, be able to survive the night. Hopefully that will be the case. Uh, sunrise is January 28th, and that's when we'll start to see Chang'e for doing uh, more science. Yeah. Hopefully get some new images from there. They also had a really great video. Did you guys see the video that they released? Yeah. Actually, let me let me link to Scott Manley's teardown of the video because he matched it to, not Google Earth, I think it's actually called Google Moon, which I think is stupid, <laughs> but uh, to, to actual 3D renders, presumably from, uh, you know, MRO's data, but, I, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like whatever Google's uh, uh, surface mapping is. And he, he matched them going all the way down and talked about the rocket. It was really cool. Yeah, yeah. Get, getting to see, like, that sort of global view of the moon and then uh -huh. specifically where the Chang'e 4 is headed. It's, it's really nice. You can see it approaching the crater from, you know, still up in orbit, but it's coming in on its descent, in the, and then it sort of, like, pitches over mm -hmm. uh, in order to do that breaking burn, I assume, yeah. and then you just see it coming down closer and closer to the surface. Yeah. That's crazy to see. I like modern times when we can have good video. <laughs> well, you know, it's very sharp video, but at least in the video that I'm watching, it's still in black and white, and I would really like to see some color. That would be great. You know, it's 2019. Co <laughs> color footage from the moon really is not as beneficial. <laughs> I know, but still. I mean, it'll still be more or less black and white. You're right, but, or, I mean, you know, it, it's just all gray. Very rich but... hues of gray, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's dark gray, and there's light gray. <laughs> That's and there's the that... dumbest thing I've ever heard, and I love it. <laughs> There's that patch of uh, mushroom white over there. That, that's yeah, right. exciting. Yeah, charcoal gray. <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, I, I loved I've just kind of like the whole time I'm like, oh, is that the crater that it's next to? No, maybe this one. Oh, no. what's what, like Because I knew it landed near like, you know, kind of a smaller impact crater. And so I was just kind of trying to guess which one it was as it came down. It's kind of hard to judge distance because you're just looking at a pockmarked surface. To me, it looks like it's much higher up. And then all of a sudden it touches down and I'm looking at individual grains of regolith. So yeah. that happened quickly. <laughs> Time for short and sweet, and we have three. 
And what's our first one, Ben? First up, Relativity Space gets a launch pad. Launch startup Relativity Space received approval from the U.S. Air Force to take over Launch Complex 16 at the Cape. LC-16 has not been used since 1988, but it has now been granted to Relativity Space under a five-year agreement. If the launch startup can demonstrate successful launches, it may then have access to an exclusive 20-year agreement. Their immediate plan is to begin building payload and rocket processing hangars, as well as other necessary infrastructure in order to launch their Terran 1 rocket by 2020. The next up, Stratolaunch scraps its launch vehicle program. So this is sad. The mobile launch venture founded by Paul Allen and Bert Rutan has announced that it will no longer pursue development of its own launch vehicles, but instead will focus on providing services through its Stratolaunch carrier aircraft by launching Northrop Grumman Pegasus XL rockets. Though capable of carrying up to three Pegasus rockets per flight, each of which could be launched to a different orbit, Stratolaunch will face stiff competition in the small set market in the coming years. So I don't know about that. It's really hard to sling a liquid rocket underneath, like horizontally, fully mm-hmm. loaded, with no top-off capabilities. I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed. Mm-hmm. And finally, ISRO aims to test reusable rocket technology this summer. ISRO Chairman K. Sivan told the Times of India that the organization will conduct an advanced version of reusable launch technology this June-July, aiming to recover both the first and second stages of their rocket. The first stage will propulsively touch down in a similar fashion to SpaceX's vertical landings, while the second stage will glide back down from space similar to the space shuttle. The first test of the recoverable second stage took place in 2016 and involved the shuttle's disintegration. This time, a helicopter will drop it from a, quote, considerable height, and it will land intact on an airstrip. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have, a, I guess, an, an update on our transcription efforts. Yeah, basically, uh, we got shit figured out. Um, I'm really happy with kind of the system that we have set up. If you're interested in consuming our transcriptions, right now there aren't a lot of links, but if you go to our Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash orbital podcast, and then click on the wiki link, it'll uh, take you to our wiki. That's where we're going to be posting transcribed or episode transcriptions. Right now we don't have a complete episode. Um, We just have some raw machine transcription that's up there, but uh, we are currently looking for volunteers. Um, If you are interested in just tidying transcriptions, um, our expectation is that you can work at around 75% uh, of full speed. Um, so it, you know, it'll only take you 25% longer than the actual episode. We really, really, really could use some help. Um, we're going to focus on getting uh, new episodes transcribed first, then interviews and data relays transcribed second, and then our entire back catalog transcribed third. If you want to start working on the transcription effort, there's not not a lot of uh, ringer to get put through. We're we're not going to put you through the ringer. That's really hard. <laughs> but it, it's it's really easy to get started. Just get in touch with us first. Um, let us make sure that we know who you are, um, and then we can point you at the right resources. We'll get you into our transcription Slack organization. And you know, if you can transcribe one segment a week, one segment every other week, that's fine. We would rather have a bunch of people doing little bits of work than a few people doing huge chunks mm-hmm. of work. Yeah, um, that would be super helpful. Just, yeah, even that. Yeah, and it's honestly, it's pretty cool for me because um, I spent this week writing some Python code and basically episodes can get uploaded pretty much automatically. There's a little bit of human intervention, but 
Um, we're using Google Cloud Speech to do some machine transcription, and and then it uploads automatically to the wiki, and it's 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 pretty cool for my end. I know that it's not uh, super enjoyable for people who aren't getting to use my <laughs> software. And then uh, speaking of other people using my software. My intention here is to start a wave of accessibility in the small space podcast realm. You know, there, there are a good handful of us doing the same, you know, working the same uh, adjacent niches, let's say. And accessibility is something that is very, very rare to see in the podcasting world. And it's something that is useful both for people who are um, hearing impaired, and also for normal listeners and for hosts. Uh, imagine being able to search all of the things that you've said on your podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, imagine having an interview and then having um, new pieces of information in that interview be used as citations on Wikipedia. And instead of just citing the entire episode, they can cite a specific line of text. Um, I, th I think that's really exciting. And, you know, accessibility shouldn't rely on benefits for abled people. You know, it's, it's good for everybody, but it, it's worth pointing out that it is good for mm -hmm. everybody. Um, so, yeah, I, I would love to have an army of people um, working on transcriptions for all sorts of space podcasts, which just don't. They're not accessible right now. That's a cool idea that for just uh, expanding this to other podcasts. And that's, I think I said last week that the idea, the prospect terrifies me. And that might just be because I do so much editing. It's like, oh my God, that's like <laughs> oh, so much more work. But if it can I mean, be done, yeah. We thought that this was going to be a bigger project than it actually turns out to be. It's, we've actually got a lot, the automation does a lot of work for us. So this is actually, I hopefully going to be faster than editing an episode is my hope. One would hope, because editing an episode is not... Uh, I got to point out, as time goes on, this is, the transcriptions are only going to get better, the machine transcriptions. Right. So there's going to there's gonna be a point where it's very, very easy to do this. But if we can do it now without too much effort, like, let's mm. let's freaking go do it. Mm -hmm. So It makes me wonder if at some point in the future, there will be some sort of service that basically all kinds of podcasts could use. And then that way, if you wanted to search for something in the podcast, you could just go to that website or, you know, use like yeah. the app or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it would just be this massive transcription of like everything said yeah. for the past, I don't know how many years. But... Yep, totally possible. Yep. Okay, time for another data relay. And this week we're talking about exotic propulsion methods. And we have uh, Chris Bush to talk with us about that. So welcome back again. Hello. You're going to talk about exotic propulsion. Now, this is something that is really cool. I assume like we're... We're probably not going to be talking about warp drives and <laughs> was it the probability drive? Like that would be neat, but I don't Ooh. think that's going to come yeah, up. Yeah, there, oh, there's yeah. a there's a little conversation between Ben and I on Slack of exactly uh, how far to go exotic wise. Yeah. Uh, this one almost could just be named not chemical propulsion. And where we came down was basically let's look at like near future and existing stuff because we started getting into some really like future technologies and i was like i'm a little uncomfortable talking about this like yeah there's a little section at the end where i mentioned just stuff that's currently being funded by nasa but there's not a whole lot um really once we get there there's a quote from uh from one of the proposals that i think will clear up everything of why it's all it's it, worth investigating but it is nowhere near anything that's actually gonna mm -hmm. do anything good anytime teaser. soon mm. that's that's some that's a good setup to keep people engaged okay <laughs> <laughs> so what's at the top of the list here we have a it looks like we have ion drives which uh i guess you can call them exotic but they have been around for some time now though really they have um so the idea was to go basically 
start with what we've got now and, and kind of work our way towards the future. Um, and that's kind of why I said this could really just be not chemical. Because uh, ion drives have been a while. There is a lot of, of research still ongoing and a lot of improvements to be made. You know, also, there there was a type of ion drive I wasn't necessarily aware of, or I kind of blew off until uh, until Ben point, pointed it back, me back towards it. So uh, just the basics of ion drives. You know, you take uh, some sort of gas, you ionize it, so you strip all the electrons off of it, they're now charged, and now you can use an electric field to accelerate those. And that's basically ion drives. Um, and I think everyone is going to be mostly familiar with their very low thrust. I think the max they've gotten out of these is like four newtons of thrust, but very high fuel efficiency, very long firing duration, things like that. So getting a little bit more into this, there's three main types. Uh, what I basically just described was electrostatic. So it's purely based on electric fields and all that. There were a couple things that I thought were kind of cool. What I didn't realize was they actually have a little, like the only th the thing they exhaust out the back is not just the fuel. They also shoot electrons out the back. And I thought this was kind of cool because, so you take this, uh, xenon's the usual, you uh, put it in this strong electric field that rips all the electrons off of it, you push that past a, a positively charged plate, or a series of char positively charged plates, and that's going to shove that out the back very, very fast, right? Well, the problem is, if you just have the positively charged xenon go out the back there's got to be some sort of a negative charge on your spacecraft, right? Because conservation of charge. If you've got positive, those negatives had to go somewhere. So if all you do is exhaust the xenon, it will actually be electrically attracted to the spacecraft and actually slow the spacecraft down, and it lowers your efficiency. So they actually sh uh, take the electrons they stripped off and also shoot those out the back too so that the exhaust eventually recombines and becomes neutral. Yeah, and we, we talked about that with uh, Dr. Mark Raymond. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes. But yeah, uh, I asked him, so do you care what direction the ions are getting shot out at? And he's like, no, they're so low mass that it doesn't matter. And, uh, and it's funny because they're low mass, but they're not low speed. They're very high speed. They basically have um, a cathode ray tube like the the cathode ray just sitting on the side that we were specifically talking about dawn and it was like yeah we just you know pointed in whatever direction was handy for arranging the spacecraft because it doesn't add any thrust because we're talking about single electrons versus the positively charged big old nucleus right yeah the electrons like times 10 to the negative 31st kilograms and the xenon molecule is going to be way the hell bigger than that yeah, yeah. I, mm. that one i don't have memorized but i mean even like even with that size difference or that size difference is big enough that it overwhelms the speed difference. Because, I mean, you have an incredibly high ISP for those electrons. If you calculate it, uh, they're really, really zipping. Yeah, which I didn't think about. But if you think about it now, that makes sense. Because if you could use the electrons as propulsion, you wouldn't need the xenon. Like, you could literally right. just you know, shoot electrons all day long and it would be even more efficient, but because they're so low mass, it's crappy fuel. So Im imagine what this cloud looks like, right? Like if you could track all of these particles, that's got to be a gigantic cloud. I mean, like bigger than, you know, chemical propulsion because they're moving so much faster. That's, it seems kind of dirty in the, in the, like contamination sense, you know? There's gonna be some interesting interplanetary kind of like atomic physics happening because now you've got all these charged particles running yeah. around. And on the big scale, I mean, it's 
tiny compared to the right, right, right. You know, solar system. Yeah. But even compared to chemical rockets, right? Chemical rockets put out mm. a much higher total mass of, of propellant. I know you just did uh, an episode on the Silas Rex. I can't remember. Does that use chemical or ion propulsion? Because I wonder if that could actually be the argument. I know they had to worry about contamination as they go through. And I wonder if actually there's an argument over, because of what you just mentioned, ion propulsion actually being bad if you have to worry about contamination. Yeah, it's hydrazine. And what they were, remember they have those uh, those doors that open and close to, to kind of be ground truth uh, contamination. Yeah, what were they, the something plates? Yeah. Um, yeah, but just the thought of chemical propulsion, you're talking about burns in the minute range at most. Ion propulsion, you're talking about hours of burns. So I wonder yeah. if... There's some, hey, I figured out a future data relay topic. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) And either way, xenon is much cleaner than hydrazine, right? Like hydrazine decomposes into a bunch of different chemicals. And xenon's just like, hi, don't talk (laughs) to me. I'm xenon. Uh, It's so true. But yeah, that's that's pretty much electrostatic. Uh, There is a concern, and this is a concern going uh, forward for all types of ion drives, is you do have some degradation of the plates. So you've got to have at least two Mm -hmm. plates, one to attract the gas, get it to go past it, and then another to push it out the back. Uh, Some will use a two or three plate system. Um, but with all of them, you do have to worry about degradation of the plates on top of your fuel supply. And as with all ion propulsion, it takes a lot of electricity, which is um, a problem, particularly further out. It was actually kind of ironic that I also did the the electrical generation uh, data relay because mm-hmm. it turns out that those two tie together very well. But yeah, so yeah, it's, it's kind of this irony that the, the ion drives would be great for long distance missions, but because of the power requirements, they're also a problem for long distance missions. So past electrostatic, there's electrothermal, which I kind of skimmed over and, and moved past and, and Ben kind of pointed me back to take another look at it. I hadn't actually heard of this before and certainly hadn't thought of it in terms of ion drives. And it's not really an ion drive. It just kind of falls into the greater category of like electrical propulsion. What electrothermal is, is basically it's a essentially just monopropellant, same as a lot of satellites use. But the idea is, you know, if, if you, uh, what we were talking about before, there's two components to uh, the thrust provided. It's the size of the molecule being launched, and it's the speed at which it's being launched. Monopropellants are going to be heavier than xenon. And then the idea behind electrothermal is if you heat up that propellant, uh, heat is energy, so it's traveling faster. And so it increases the thrust you're going to get out of that same massive fuel. So it's basically upping your efficiency. It's about a 30% increase in ISP, uh, depending on which type of electrothermal you're talking about. So exactly what kind of monopropellants are we talking about? Uh, I've seen all types. I saw one proposed that used hydrogen, which uh, sounds nuts. So you're just heating it up and that's all you're doing, which of course would increase the ISP because you're increasing the pressure by expanding it. But um, that seems, I don't know, there, there, there just seems to be something thermodynamically there that doesn't make sense. Like you could still get the extra specific impulse by doing something else. I don't know. It seems like that that's like kind of like an unnecessary step, but that's just my intuition and I'm sure it's wrong. Um, But yeah, you just heat it up and then that's kind of like all you need to do to increase the thrust. Well, so so keep in mind for monopropellant, it's one of two ways. It's either you can just think of it as compressed air in that you know, it's under pressure and it's released, or it can be something that spontaneously decays mm-hmm. into more energetic parts. But like, if you think about just a, a canned air, hot air moves quicker than colder air, right? So if you have bottled air and then you release it, but you heat it up as it escapes, 
that heat is going to turn into more energetic molecules of air, so that's going to give you more thrust. That makes sense. I mean, if we're talking about just a compressed gas, then sh sure. But I was thinking more about something, you know, like hydrazine, something that decays, like you said, and that produces, I would imagine, a fair amount of heat already. And so heating it up by some other means, I mean, I'm just thinking it can't be by too much because how are you doing that? Do you have like massive batteries on board the spacecraft? Or I guess you could be using solar power. I suppose it, it does help, but I'm just wondering by how much. But it says here as much as 30%, and that actually kind of surprises me. It kind of makes it seem like that's something that should have been done from the very beginning. And I guess perhaps it has. So resist. So there's, there's a couple types, and the most common type uh, and the oldest actually first flew in 1965. It's called a resistojet, and it's literally just you put a resistor in the path of the fuel, and you run electricity through it, and you heat it up. But it ran on the uh, the Vela satellites, which were the satellites used to um, for nuclear detonation detection. So yeah, that basic kind has been used for a while. Um, and wouldn't necessarily fall under the category of exotic propulsion. Where things are getting more interesting is, so those have been around for a while and have just been part of monopropellant uh, propulsion. But now you're looking at uh, arc jets, which are instead of just having a resistor, you're actually arcing electricity through. So yeah, they're currently used, it looks like Lockheed Martin is the one that's mostly using those. And actually it is using hydrazine. Uh, which is not what I would have expected. It does explain the the drawback of uh, you know these things do have significantly lower lifespans than ion engines. But yeah, they uh, it uses uh, hydrazine. Uh, ammonia is another typical one for for an arc jet, and uh, it's a five eighty five for its specific impulse uh, mm. using two kilowatts wow. of power. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of like, uh, this shouldn't work. This seems like a really bad idea, but it actually works really well. Well, and my guess would be the resistor jets, and I, I'm sorry, I can't find anything quick off the top of my head with uh, for fuel for those, but my guess would be the resistor jets can't use the hydrazine because the hydrazine is actually coming in contact with the element, and it's probably going to decay pretty quick. Mm. But once you've got mm. a good enough setup mm. to be able to arc the electricity through the cavity and you have less mm. contact it probably became a little bit easier to do there. That's a good observation. And then the other one that is currently uh, 100% in, in development stage is actually remove, uh, expanding the lifespan by removing the element altogether. So you started with literally having a wire that the fuel passes over to heat up. Then you've got, well, let's just arc electricity through the cavity. And now the new one is uh, microwave arc jets uh, that are currently undergoing experimentation that... Uh, can't find my source now. I think it was supposed to increase it by another 10%. Hmm. But essentially, you just pass it through a, a uh, resonance cavity and essentially use a microwave to heat up. Uh, but now you're removing the, uh, the contact between everything. So you get greater efficiency because, you know, with a resistojet, you literally have to pass through this, this element, right? So you're, you're heating up the fuel where it touches the element, but you're not really having enough time to have that heat spread through the rest of the fuel. Whereas uh, in a microwave cavity, you're getting more uniform heat throughout. Uh, and because there's less contact, you're also getting a little bit better uh, lifespan and things like that. It's very, very hard to not make a bunch of microwave jokes like popcorn and... <laughs> What are those? Uh, what are those disgusting things called that are pastry on the outside and ice cold? Uh, hot pockets. Pigs in a blanket. Hot pockets. Yeah. How do you not remember? Oh. What a hot <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so you know you in you install your microwave arc jet 
and uh, you think it's really going to increase the ISP of your engine, but it turns out that the middle of the fuel is just super, yeah. super cold while everything else is like lava. Yeah. Well, and I, I was, because it's theoretical, I wasn't find, able to find a whole lot. I really want to know how they find a way to like spread the microwaves more evenly. You know, since you get hot spots in a microwave. I, it's, it's crazy to me that you can do this at all, but I mean, I guess it makes sense. But yeah, that, that microwave spread would be, um, it just always reminds me of the experiment we do where we use a microwave to measure the speed of light mm-hmm. uh, and the, the spots in the, the chocolate bar. wonder how they spread the... The energy out. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's probably just a better resonant chamber, right? Because like with consumer electronics, you don't know what's going inside of it. You don't know where the food is going to be. And like you're limited by cost versus sale price. But with these things, you probably can, everything is much more uniform. So you can probably dump more money into it anyway. And True. Plus you're probably dealing with a smaller cavity so you can be more focused. Sure. Anyway. um, Yeah. That's, uh, that's electrothermal, which... Yeah, that one was a, a little neat. So, so far we have electrostatic, electrothermal, and then the next one is electromagnetic. Yep. So the idea here is um, instead of dealing with just like xenon and you rip the electrons off and you use electrostatic forces, is if you use plasmas, um, there's a couple advantages. Number one, you can use magnetic fields, uh, which means... Uh, it can be a little bit uh, better lifespan because you don't have those grids the fuel needs to pass through. You just have a magnetic field, so there's no actual physical contact with anything. And plasmas are going to be heavier. You have a a wider range of fuels you can use because you don't need something Mm. that's just easily ionized and relatively uh, inert. You can pretty much do anything. And there's a couple ways they've come up with for uh, creating these plasmas. And one of them, this might be part of the Vasmer engine, uh, but essentially, if you can handle the magnetic fields well enough, which is always an if, uh, you can actually take this, whatever chemical you want, squeeze it in magnetic fields if it's already slightly charged, and use that to heat it up and turn it into plasma, and then use other magnetic fields to propel it out the back. So it's mostly, from what I've seen, it's not a whole lot greater efficiency. It is better uh, because you can use heavier fuels, which will give you more impulse. Um, But it's mostly about trying to expand the lifespan of the engine. And uh, so far, I think most uh, designs they've produced are actually slightly lower lifespan because you're adding a lot more complexity. Beside what you just said, you don't have anything in here about Vasimir then because uh, that is that is a type of propulsion that a lot of people I think still point to and they say, hey look, this is the future because it's kind of like an ion thruster but uh, you can vary much more widely the amount of thrust, which uh, is kind of a neat trick, except that it would require, from what I understand, a huge amount of energy, which just, there's no way of putting yeah. that on a spacecraft. That's what it comes down to. Like, uh, I know anytime they talk about, oh, yeah, you could do a Mars mission in 40 days, it comes down to if you've got like three nuclear reactors on board. Which, I mean, one day, like, that's not sure. ridiculous. Well, and and this is why I said it ties in well with the first data reel I did with, yeah. uh, with Kalo Power, if that plays out. If you can have a relatively low weight, lo- relatively low complexity, you know, 
10 kilowatt generator, there's some some possibilities here. Yeah, I didn't. I meant to to do Vasmir then and uh, forgot to go back and actually include it. But yeah, I think low end estimates are like 200 megawatt. It's like yeah. 200,000 kilowatts is not uh, an insignificant amount of <laughs> <No>. uh, <laughs> amount of fuel. And I know Vasmir is also uh, touted as well. It's a lot higher thrust. Um, but I'm trying to come up with the exact numbers. I think by high thrust, they're talking about like 40 newtons. I know the main advantage is, and this is true of all magnetic ion engines, is there's essentially no moving parts. So it should be more reliable. Um, the downside is you do need very large magnetic fields like Tesla range. We're talking about essentially what you find mm-hmm. in MRI machines. And you also have some issues uh, I know I saw with operating them inside the Earth's magnetic field actually can cause issues Hmm. um, because you can actually create torque operating an engine like that. So you actually have to have, you can arrange that, but you have to arrange it with coupled magnetic fields in different directions to counteract that torque. So there's there's some complexities based on where you're also trying to operate Vasmir. So it, it's definitely interesting. It's absolutely something that we're looking into and, and should be looked into. But uh, I don't think it's going to be quite the, the game changer some people think it will be. Yeah. Hull effect kind of, uh, I know those have been a little bit more popular because uh, our in the news, so to speak, uh, because I believe uh, Starlink is still planning on using Hall Effect thrusters. Those are kind of a mix between electrostatic and electromagnetic in that they use the magnetic to propel the the thrust or the fuel out the back, but they use the electrostatic force to actually get it all into position. So they're kind of a mix of both. Um, But those have been around since the 70s. One of the other ideas with magnetic fields is because you don't have these moving parts, you don't have all this stuff you have to charge up and then go, you could uh, pulse it. So you could get around lower power by, you know, slow charging capacitors and then doing pulsed thrust. But that seems kind of defeat the entire purpose of ion engines. I mean, kind of, because there are ion engines or most, uh, most ion engine thrust profiles anyway pulse on the order of, a, you know, like a day on, a day off, a day on, a day off, something like that. I think that's partially for just being able to navigate better. But, I mean, it's 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 not like every single ion thruster that's up there is on constantly. Yes, this is, uh, this type, uh, what are they, pulsed inductive thrusters are actually talking about uh, pulsing 200 times a second. So, okay, so by slow charge... Capacitor, you mean slow for electronics, not slow for humans. Yes, sorry. But yeah, that's that's pretty much ion engines. Uh, kind of a, a good introduction for the topic. But yeah, there's nothing particularly exotic about them, given how long they've been in use, but still different than what most people think of when they think rockets. Okay, solar sails. This is uh, this is where I'm the most interested for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, there's actually been a lot more work done in these than I actually thought of before I got into this one mission in particular, uh, but also there's uh, one idea in particular at the end that, that's really kind of neat um, that actually uh, came out of killing the ramjet idea. So photonic sails, uh, solar sails, again, basic idea. Um, the sun's putting out all this light. If you reflect light, everyone always forgets it, but even though light doesn't have mass, it does have momentum. So if a photon hits a mirrored surface and reflects, um, you are transferring 
roughly double its initial momentum to the craft because its uh, its change in momentum would be basically goes from what's you know speed of light to zero and then back the other way and that's the the impulse provided to the spacecraft. So basic idea is you put a giant mirror out there and let light push it around, which first of all is neat. Second of all, everyone hears solar sails and they think of space pirates literally, uh, which is always entertaining. Yeah, that's 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 a fine a fine misunderstanding. I'm okay with that. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, you know, Queen Anne's Revenge only with solar sails. So you it's essentially just a giant flexible mirror uh, is what it comes down to. Variations of mylar are very popular. The main thing is it's got to be huge. Um, because let's say you're around Earth's orbit, and I've got a little chart in the uh, in the the outline. Around Earth's orbit, the radiation pressure per square meter is nine micronewtons, so nine times ten to the negative sixth newtons. So for a one meter square sail, you're not getting a whole lot of thrust out of it. Um, so you're talking about uh, sails that are on the order of hundreds to thousands of square meters to get any appreciable uh, thrust out of this. The plus side is they're very efficient for what they use. So, like they get about 90% of the original energy out. Uh, there is some loss because you're going to absorb some of that energy as heat. Uh, there's going to be some wrinkles in the fabric because you've got to be able to fold this up. Um, as it heats up, it's going to emit thermal radiation forward, which is going to count produce counter thrust, which slows you down. But you're still getting about 90% of the energy from the light from the sun, which isn't isn't bad. Other things to mention, uh, you can move towards and away from the sun, uh, which is only worth mentioning because like whenever I think solar sails, I always think of, you know, I don't know if any of you guys have been sailing before, but I always think in terms of actual sailing. And when I was trying to think of how you'd move towards the sun, I'm like, but wait, how would tacking work? Because, you know, tacking involves the wind, but also using the water pressure on the hull of the boat. And then I realized I couldn't find any sources that explain this because I was being dumb. And the answer is really mm-hmm. obvious <laughs> in that you move to the sun if you slow down. So you just tilt your mirror so that it reflects light in the direction you're traveling. Now you fall towards the sun, no problem. And, and it's it's worth pointing out that, yeah, this is very different than sailing on the water in which you point your sail in the direction you want to go um, because the wind fills the sail and pushes you in that direction. In this case, like you said, it's, it's all about reflections. And so you, you basically have to think about the direction, right? Cause uh, light reflects off of a mirror at the same angle that it came in. So, you know, if, if you want to look at something behind you, you need a mirror flat in front of you. But if you want to look at something directly to the side, you need your mirror to be at 45 degrees, which is half of the 90 degrees that you want to actually reflect the light. And so in this case, you basically point your sail halfway between the sun and the direction that you want to obtain thrust in, and it reflects and pushes you. So it's, it's weird, but it's, actually mm-hmm. kind of advantageous, especially like you said, when you think about orbital dynamics, most of the time you're going to want to point 90 degrees away from the sun anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you guys brought that up because I was definitely just like you thinking in terms of terrestrial sails and not orbitally. And I had that question as well as how exactly do you move towards <laughs> the sun? Yeah. yeah. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> it does also allow you to not only have thrust, you can actually use it uh, for three axis control. And there's actually some really cool examples that did that. 
but essentially, and again, things I didn't think of is you don't have to just tilt the sail. You can also alter how reflective the sail is. So like if you want to use it to turn it, you can make the right side of your sail less reflective than the left side. And that's going to provide a net torque off of that. Or as simple as if you shift where the center of mass is, if you make it so you can shift your craft off center of the sail, that will also provide a torque. Uh, and there were actually some examples. I know when I was doing power generation, I mentioned solar radiation and drag being a downside to solar panels. And Ben and I were looking for some examples, and I, I found one kind of example. What I completely missed was apparently uh, Messenger. We talked in that episode about how they had to ha replace some of the solar cells with mirrors. But what I missed was they actually experimented with using the solar panels as solar arrays to actually change the orientation of the solar panels to do some uh, attitude control and save some thrust from their uh, thrusters. Huh. Really? Messenger did that? Yep. Did, did they actually end up doing it or did they just study the possibility? Um, no, it looks like they actually did it for some. Oh, uh, let me so see cool. the other... There were there are a couple other examples that uh, that did that and I'm, I moved away from that uh, that article. Hold on. That's very cool. Uh, it says Messenger did, uh, the Mariner 10 missions apparently did, hmm. Hayabusa did as well. That was how Hayabusa 1 actually uh, in part compensated for the reaction wheel failure they had, was to uh, use solar pressure on the, 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 I think they referred to them as solar paddles. <laughs> so, yeah. There's, there's so many good analogies to actual sailing in the ocean. This just makes me very happy. <laughs> Right. So yeah, the uh, the fact that you can do uh, three axis control, and actually this is this is a, as good of a time to any to bring up. Uh, one thing I didn't actually realize was I w was always thinking that light sail two uh, on the next Falcon Heavy launch was going to be the first like full scale. I did not realize uh, JAXA, uh, the Japanese Space Agency, actually deployed a uh, a spin deployed sail that actually used. Uh, the solar sail as their primary thrust. The solar sail itself generated 400 meters per second of delta V. Hmm. Uh, it was called uh, Akaros. Uh, let me actually look up what it stood for. It was interplanetary kite craft accelerated by radiation of the sun uh, back in 2010. Yeah, but no, it was really cool. So they, they launched it up and then they spun it up uh, to about 20 to 25 RPM. And on the four corners of this little kite-shaped sail, um, they had like half kilogram weights to basically let this spin deploy. And uh, once it was fully extended, the, the area of the sail was uh, 196 square meters. Uh, it was 46 feet by 46 feet. Uh, the sail, I couldn't find what the sail was actually made of. I believe it was a, a, a layer combination of mylar and a couple other things. Um, oh, no, it is a thick sheet of polymide that uh, spun up. And then what was cool, um, this showed all sorts of examples of the ways you can control it. So like I said, I threw the, the picture in Discord, uh, the diagram of essentially where it's, what was on its solar cell. And so what you've got is they didn't just have the solar sail, they also had along the outside, they had LCD panels. Because uh, mm. I mentioned you can control attitude by changing the reflectivity. So they would alter what the LCDs were displaying. You know, if you want to <laughs> turn it to the right, then you have the left side go black. 
it now reflects left the less the right side reflects more and you have a net torque around so you could actually use just like altering lcds to alter the reflectivity of key points um they had solar cells on there they had the tip mass uh tethers actually connecting the whole thing it was it was really really cool the way it was designed um, and okay, it actually fun. launched in 2010. It eventually lost contact, I believe, 2015. The last I found was it said, it, it uh, from any source, was it's expected to come out of hibernation in winter of 2015. And then I found nothing after that. <laughs> so I'm guessing it didn't come out of hibernation. So, yeah, really cool that we actually had uh, had an example of that. Because uh, I did not know we actually have used it for propulsion before. I know LightSail 2 is expected to be 32 square meters, so actually it's going to be a lot smaller sail. So it'll be interesting. So that was the example. Now back to solar cells in or uh, solar sails in general. They're not great for human missions because they had you know their main advantage comes in unlike most types of propulsion this is reactionless right you don't have to carry fuel you're just reflecting things from the sun so it's nice in that way it doesn't allow for very quick missions like thrust is not a key thing but some of the great proposals is they're fantastic for for probes and and robotic missions um, but they would also be great for cargo tugs like if you get to the point where you need to be regularly transferring cargo from point to point, you know, load them up in, in robotic tugs and the solar sails can provide, you know, no fuel, low thrust, constant thrust to, you know, do cargo transfer missions. Like I think it said uh, for 23 tons, you could do a 400 day transfer to uh, Mars two years to Jupiter. So it's slower, but you can basically have these running nonstop because you have very few moving parts and yeah. you don't have to worry about refueling or anything like that. Uh, there was another proposed mission uh, that would basically just be working on sending a probe uh, using solar solar sails as your propulsion two and a half years to the heliopause, six and a half years to reach the sun's inner gravitational focus, which actually now that I wrote that down, I don't remember what the sun's inner gravitational focus is i'm guessing it's the furthest point something orbiting the sun could have the focus of its ellipse of orbit would be my guess whatever that the, oh, the cooler oh, part no, is it's even better it's use it's the uh nearest distance that you need to get to to be able to use the sun as a telescope Oh, that is right. Okay. That's what it was. So it's a gravitational <laughs> okay, lensing, lensing yeah. focus. Okay. Oh, that yes. would be focus. so Not an orbital cool. focus. <laughs> yes. But you're right. Cooler. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would totally do a solar sail to get there. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. uh, 30 years to get to the inner Oort cloud, which would also be very cool. Because, again, the idea, when uh, for uh, the common theme with a lot of these uh, more exotic propulsion methods is if you don't need to use fuel or something like that, it's not about high thrust it's about constant low thrust and if you can constantly get four newtons over 20 years that adds up to your hauling and then the alternative to solar the sun is the other proposal is and i like how it always gets hypothetical of well if you build giant orbital banks of very efficient lasers uh which is its own <laughs> thing yeah. um but if you could you could use essentially beamed power instead of actually beaming the power itself you could use uh lasers in orbit around the earth directed at these solar cells and reflect the laser light so you're getting higher efficiency you're getting higher energy 
uh, because it's more directed and less spread out, you can use solar cells more efficiently at further orbits. Um, it does, however, presuppose that you can build giant laser banks in orbit yes. around the Earth, which is mm -hmm. its own construction project. Or you could just plop them on the moon, maybe. Sure. I mean, either way, you're still <laughs> still talking about building Quite trivial <laughs> yeah yeah it, it kind of doesn't matter where you're building them at that point in that mm -hmm. you're still launching that much mass out of the gravity well have you guys talked about breakthrough starshot at all no no that i don't think so <laughs> so it is uh this it's this crazy mission design it's using solar sails for interstellar like to launch probes to alpha centauri theoretically it would be 20 years to get there and then four years so if we launched it today it would theoretically be 24 years before we got information back about alpha centauri which for interstellar distances is quite reasonable the mission right. profile is not <laughs> So the idea is you launch thousands of spacecraft under 20 grams, and each one has a 16 square meter solar sail. So you're only talking about a four by four square. And you've got banks of lasers in orbit that each one focuses on a single solar sail for 10 minutes. And because you have such low mass, and these lasers would have such high thrust over those 10 minutes, you could accelerate these craft to 20% of the speed of light. And that would give you a 20-minute flight time, or 20-minute, 20, 20 wow, 20-year <laughs> flight time. That's a good time. Guys, we've moved to FTL now. Yeah, so 20-year flight time to Alpha Centauri. The problem is getting data back from a 20-gram spacecraft there are proposals for how you'd power them, and the idea would be if you continuously launch these, then you wouldn't actually need like a deep space array. You could actually just have like each spacecraft talk back to the one behind it and relay it back to Earth. Uh -huh. There's some proposals from this. Now, the, the downside, as cool as this sounds, is the most recent report was um, this is totally doable if we get every off-the-shelf technology we need to increase by two orders of magnitude. So it's doable with current technology if it gets a whole lot better. Uh, but basically, everything needs to get lighter and more energy efficient and, and yada, yada, yada. But still kind of a cool idea using these. There are some uh, variations of the solar cell. So you've got just the mirror reflecting either a laser or the sun. You also have ablative solar sails uh, where basically, and I, I'm blanking on the, the, the details. I believe it's in how it actually lases, um, but a maser versus a laser. Microwave. Yes, thank you, microwave. But basically using masers because they're easier to build and you can get more power out of them um, to actually, instead of having a whole panel, a whole sail, you actually can just have a grid because the microwaves have a longer wavelength than light. So you don't actually have to, to catch the microwaves, you only need a grid where the spacing in between wires in the grid is the same as the wavelength of the microwave. So you can get away with less stuff. And if you make it ablative, you can actually have that microwave burn off part of the sail. So not only are you absorbing the energy of the photons, but you also have the thrust of the actual ablation of the sail itself. Because, I mean, yeah, that's what ablative means. And so when I was looking at this, I'm like, so you're degrading your sail, but you're just using that momentum to give you even more thrust. Yeah. And, and so I guess, I mean, when you're talking about part, like, at things at the microscopic level, you can afford to do that. Is well, that the idea? I think it's the idea. I think from what I've seen is you could also, by changing the frequency, like, so microwaves work because they, they resonate water, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. So if you tuned the microwaves, you could set it so you could normally do it in not ablative mode. And then if you need 
I'm going to, I'm air quoting high thrust here because <laughs> proportionally, <laughs> but if you need a higher thrust mode, you could shift the frequency of the masers and start to ablate. So you could kind of do this high speed, low or low thrust, high thrust mode, you know, proportional to solar sails. I thought that was kind of neat. And then the one I'm really, really excited for is magnetic sails. So I mentioned uh, making Ben sad earlier. We had talked about, and we can do this a little bit at the end of like talking about sci-fi and you know some of the sci-fi ideas. And and Ben mentioned one of his favorites was the the Buzzard ramjet, right? Well, it turns out looking into that, no one seriously considers it anymore because it wouldn't work. Because for those familiar with the idea of the ramjet, it was you basically have this giant magnetic cone in front of a spacecraft. That magnetic cone sucks in hydrogen atoms which then you pass out the back. So the same idea of a ramjet on Earth, where by going really fast, it's pre-compressing the air in front, and then you can heat that up and shoot that out the back. The problem they found was you need such a large magnetic field that the magnetic field's interaction with the solar, the sun's heliopause and heliosphere actually slows you down more than the ramjet will speed you up. Okay, so it's only unreasonable to use it near a star. Yeah, it might be able it might be doable. I didn't actually see anyone looking into this about interplanetary. You're right, that might be possible. But for in solar system, it has that in interaction with the sun's magnetic field. That's a problem. What's cool is then they looked at this and said, well hey, if the magnetic field slows you down more than it speeds you up, why don't we just use the magnetic field to speed us up? And so that's the idea of a magnetic sail is instead of using a giant mirror to reflect light from the sun, create a magnetic field that does the same thing, but with the solar wind generated by the sun. So the idea is you can have a very large magnetic field, but you don't need to have that enormous structure. Like if you're talking like a 23 ton mission to Mars, you're going to need like a... couple kilometer square kilometer sized sail with a magnetic field you don't have to have all of the structure you don't have to have the the uh, deployment mechanisms or anything like that you can just have a relatively compact system and let magnetic fields do the work on top of that and the part that i think is really really cool there's a proposal they're looking into now called uh and i forgot to write this down on the outline mini magnetospheric plasma propulsion m2p2 where the idea is you just create a magnetosphere around your spacecraft. So the idea is, it's it's the same as electromagnet, right? An electromagnet is you have uh, electricity running through coils of wire. The moving electric charge creates a magnetic field. If you put like a, an iron core in that electromagnet, it becomes more powerful, right? Because you're essentially aligning the, elect- the, mag- uh, the magnetic moments of the iron core with your electromagnet and it's magnifying the effect. So the idea here is you have an electromagnet, but then you shove plasma into it. And that plasma is then going to, what they call inflating the magnetic field, you're basically aligning the magnetic field of that plasma with your electromagnet. And as that plasma goes out, it creates a magnetic field around it. So you're using essentially fuel in whatever it is you're using for the plasma to vastly magnify the size of your magnetic field. Honestly, the words that you just said sounded like a conspiracy theorist on Reddit. Um, <laughs> a little bit. Uh, let me let me talk a little bit about how the Earth's magnetic field works. Actually, I had to uh, researching this reminded me of how little I remember from the days I used to do research on this. To the point of I accidentally started reading a paper, reminding <laughs> myself on this, and it turns out I helped write the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so that's awkward. Um, 
so the 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 basics is like so again plasma is just like something that doesn't have electrons anymore essentially you know it's it's electrically charged gas and the earth has something called current sheets because essentially i'm trying to think decide how to exactly explain this so when the solar the charged particles from the sun get trapped in the earth's magnetic field they start spinning around the magnetic field lines from the earth and all of those spinning particles create a, they're, they're called current sheets because well they have a thickness um the numbers are something like size to thickness of a piece of paper is like 200 to 1 size to thickness of these electric current sheets are like 400,000 to 1 so like the current sheet that develops around the solar system might be a thousand kilometers thick but it's freaking enormous, so it's still rel- It's it's thin enough that we still call right, it infinitely right, right. thin. But it's this plane over which all of these charged particles move and essentially create electrical currents moving through, which generate their own magnetic fields. And because around the Earth, what you get is you get positives on one side, negatives on one side. That actually blocks further solar radiation and and solar charged particles coming in. So that current sheet is actually, and the thickness of it varies based on solar storms and all this other stuff. But that's the idea, that this plasma creates its own magnetic field that is aligned with the magnetic field of your electromagnet. So as it moves out, it's essentially creating, like it'd be the same as deploying a mechanical sail, except you're just sending out plasma. You don't need any support structure for that if that makes mm. any sense okay that's a good way to explain it but the the idea is you could essentially create a magnetic sale quote-unquote to that would be the equivalent of like a 10 square kilometer uh solar sail but it would basically be from like a vacuum-sized electromagnet and some plasma storage. So um, it, it's up there. The examples, uh, this is still in the hypothetical. They've done some work on Earth to show that the magnetic field will inflate the way they think it will. Uh, but running on the current numbers, your propellant, it's not really propellant, but to create this field, um, as, if you treat that as propellant, though, it essentially has an ISP in the neighborhood of 200 kilonewton seconds per kilogram, which is 50 times the efficiency of the shuttle's main engines. And it would overall require less power than ion engines. So uh, I believe the numbers were for one kilowatt, it would get you 100 kilograms of payload, and it would take you half a kilogram of fuel consumption per day. So really interesting ideas. And on top of it, it'll let you go deep space because you've got the solar wind, but that falls off as the inverse square just as solar sails do. But if you get close to a planet like, say, Jupiter that has a really strong magnetic field, you can literally interact with its magnetosphere to propel around the Jupiter system. So you don't get a gravity assist, you get a magnetic assist. Yeah, or you like could... <laughs> Or you could send a probe to Jupiter with a chemical rocket and then deploy a small-scale magnetic sail to maneuver around mm. Jupiter and bouncing around between its moons and all that other stuff. Because on top of it, they've only started to look into this, but one of the things we talked about with power generation is one of the problems around Jupiter is it's a very high-radiation environment. If you're mm. generating your own magnetic field, that gives you some measure of shielding against that. So you're getting a propulsion system mm. and you're actually preventing degradation mm. to a degree. I like that. Let, let's do yeah, that. Sounds like a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's neat. Now, I really like that one. <laughs> now, the problem is, uh, if uh, anyone's followed anything about nuclear fusion, is magnetic fields are tricky little jerks. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because like the whole problem with nuclear fusion right now is you try to use magnetic fields to squeeze something down, but as soon as you think you've got a contained magnetic field, something squeaks out somewhere and you've got to find a new way to contain that. So magnetic fields are, are tricky little suckers to deal with. All right. So the last couple are, are relatively uh, short and sweet a little bit. Uh, so I included NERVA here, nuclear engine for rocket vehicle application. So this has Again, it's it's kind of like ion engines. It's been in development since the 60s. Uh, they ran some ground tests in, I believe, the 70s. Um, and the whole idea was if the Apollo program had continued, NERVA was going to be the way they were going to get astronauts to Mars. And then mm-hmm. with the issues of launching nuclear material and the general reduction of budget, NERVA kind of died. Interestingly enough, NERVA actually started as development for a indefinitely cruising nuclear cruise missile. The idea being that you have a scoop in the front, you have a nuclear reactor, and you scoop up air, pass it through the nuclear reactor, it gets really hot, and you shoot it out the back, so you could basically have nuclear-tipped cruise missiles that just orbit over the ocean indefinitely, and then when you send a signal, they go nuke Russia. The problem being, and they got to, to low-scale testing, um, it basically irradiates everything underneath this cruise missile, which kind of is a problem if you want to fly them away from your country and not kill everyone along the way. So development kind of stopped on that. But yeah, it's a pretty basic uh, pro- uh, idea. The same thing we were talking about with electrothermal is if you heat something up, its molecules are moving faster, so you get propulsion from that when you throw it out the back. Um, and most of these are some variation of that. You, uh, you take a fuel, usually liquid hydrogen, you pass it over a nuclear core, which is really, really hot. It heats up the liquid hydrogen and you shoot it out the back and you get thrust. Uh, something like ISPs over 9,000. I didn't intend that as an internet meme. It's literally just what it was listed as. Um, <laughs> three meganewtons uh, worth of thrust and a thrust to weight ratio, something over 30. So, really neat. Hard to argue with. Let's go build it. Yep. The downside, incredibly radioactive because there there are multiple different types, solid core, liquid core, closed uh, cycle, gas core, open, blah, 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 blah. I, I have focused on two different types. The open cycle is literally you just have this fuel throwing over the core. The problem is... That's going to break parts of the core off into your fuel, which means your exhaust is going to be incredibly radioactive, which in space doesn't seem like it would be a big deal, but it does mean you need a minimum of 200 or 200 meters between the crew compartment and your thrust source and the exhaust. Mm -hmm. That's got to be a big spaceship. It also has the issue of you're degrading your core, so this thing is ripping itself apart every time you fire it, and also the fact that you have to launch this giant nuclear core into space, which means you have protests from every single group imaginable and a couple decades worth of paperwork. There are some other interesting ideas. Uh, One is the pulsed nuclear thermal reactor, which the idea is, I mean, that's literally what it sounds like. It's you pulse it instead of constant firing. You actually can ramp up your core to hotter temperatures, but because it's only in very short bursts, it doesn't have time to melt, and then it cools down again. So you get better efficiencies out of it, lower lower radiation, longer lifespan, better control of your fuel, but no one's really putting money into it. Um, right now, the focus on nuclear power in space is things like kilo power and using it to generate electricity versus using it as a uh, power supply. Or sorry, uh, thruster. Thank you. <laughs> I'm having a good day. 
But yeah, that's that's pretty much Nerva. I really I can't find a whole lot of reason we're not doing it other than it'd have to be large. It's and that's tough to do right now. On top of it's it can be dangerous and the political issues. One thing that's interesting I could throw out there: uh, if you're ever in Vegas, they have a uh, a nuclear themed museum, and they have a big mock up of uh, Nerva there that you can check out. Cool. But yeah, if we ever built it, uh, I know there's some some plans out there for 80 80 day round trips to Mars. But we'd have to build it first. And so right now, I think mostly what's holding it behind is it, it needs a lot more research. You know, uh, I'm sure there are issues we haven't run into yet. And that takes funding, which we don't have. And no one wants to fund it. All right. And then ones I literally labeled short and sweet because I like to rip off from your show. There have been, uh, there's what's called the NASA Institute for Advanced Concepts, uh, or NIAC grants. Uh, which are basically, they're small grants under $400,000 uh, that are meant for very long-term experimental things. Um, not all about thrust, but they do them, you know, some with uh, re- using rotation for, for gravity for space stations and asteroid mining and stuff like that. So I went through those grants because uh, there were some recently awarded earlier this year. Sorry. Earlier this academic year, teacher. I don't. I don't think in terms of calendar. <laughs> uh, early in the fall. That's funny. I was on the same wavelength. <laughs> yeah, there are. There were three propulsion concepts that were funded. One of which is really interesting. One of which has that quote I mentioned earlier, and then one of which is probably complete crap. But hey, NASA's funding it, so I'll mention it. Um, so the first is actually using a nuclear fusion drive. So, again, with fuel, it's mostly the hotter you get it, the better, and nuclear fusion is really, really hot. So it's a, a way to avoid having the whole open nuclear core of nuclear propulsion by having nuclear fusion. So this is called the Puff Engine, um, which I just think they should change to Magic Dragon. Uh, pulsed Fission <laughs> Fusion. And the idea is you take a uranium-235 pellet, which you're still launching uranium, but at least now it's 235. Every reactor core concept is highly enriched, so it's 238. Now you've got weapons grade. Now you need Marines guarding things. Costs go up. So this is at least 235. A pellet with a deuterium-trinium core inside. So you have the uh, hydrogen in there, a mix of the deuterium, so an extra neutron, and tritium. Wait, hang on. Are, are you sure it's 235? Because uh, 235 is weapons grade. Right. 238 is used as the tamper in nuclear weapons. 235 is used as the core. So I need to go back to school tomorrow and uh, <laughs> fix something I explained to my students because I've been explaining that wrong. Anyway, me being dumb aside, okay, fine. So it is weapons grade still, so you still need Marines. Still, you need less of it. But so yeah, you get, so you got this uranium inside with hydrogen and tritium. Essentially, it's the same principle behind a nuclear bomb. A nuclear bomb is you set off a uranium atomic bomb or plutonium to use the radiation pressure to compress hydrogen to create fusion. So that's why it's fission fusion. You fi- uh you fission fission the uranium and use that to fuse the hydrogen. But instead of needing chemical Mm -hmm. explosives and basically turning this into Orion, which is cool in its own right, you use magnetic fields to compress the crap out of this. That's what triggers the fusion, which triggers the fission. Lots of energy released uh, using fuel and other methods. You throw that energy out the back and you have these pulses of energy. So it's kind of a throwback to the Orion concept that, you know, throw a nuke out the back, blow it up and have a pusher plate dampen the the shock wave, but much smaller scale. So it's much more controlled and you don't need to have 
tens of thousands of nuclear bombs you're launching into space for obviously political reasons. The claimed uh, ISP for this is 30,000 uh, Newton seconds. So, and they say they could get to Mars in a month, but that's why it's phase two. Still very uh, experimental. They've done some testing. It's promising, but they're not sure exactly how that's going to go. The second grant given was the laser-powered ion drive. So I read this. I'm like, oh, exciting. Okay, so you got lasers shooting out the back. You're somehow going to use the lasers to heat up the fuel in the <laughs> ion drive. No, it's literally just an ion drive, but you get rid of the power problems by having orbital power. Yeah, that's boring. Much, yeah. much less exciting than I thought of. But it proposes 12 kilowatts of power uh, using lithium as your fuel. You have solid storage. It's easily ionized. It doesn't ha- degrade the grid as well. But you need a lot of power. That's why we use Xeon instead of lithium. So it claims four times the lifetime of an ion drive, 20 times the current ion drive ISP, which is impressive in itself and would be great. Here is the quote I teased at the beginning and how I feel about all of these things NASA is currently funding at low levels. However, quote, we take as a given the existence of an orbital filled 10 kilometer array and assume that the output power has been derated by a factor of 1,000 from 100 gigawatts down to 100 megawatts. So this entire proposal assumes that you have a 10-kilometer array of orbital lasers just sitting in orbit, not doing anything else. Frankly, I think if we can build a 10-kilometer array of lasers, we kind of got some other technology figured out, but that's just me. And then the third one I found that I tried going in more detail in, and I just couldn't go down the rabbit hole of crazy... Um, is the mock effect drive, which some know as the EM drive that I included only because if I didn't include it, I thought some crazy people would yell at me. It's probably just an experimental error. It's theoretically possible because a lot of people says it breaks, you know, conservation of momentum, but you then, because it's reactionless, but then technically so do solar cells because you're not pushing against thru- uh, something that acts as propellant. Uh, in the case of like the magnetic field ones, you're pushing against the magnetic field. The Mach effect might be pushing against the way gravity interacts in certain frames of reference. I don't know. It's weird. It's kind of crazy. But they're giving us is giving it some money, so I figured it was worth at least a mention. It's the don't email us mention. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Please don't. Like, if, if if you're a proponent of it, I tried. I really did. I even broke out my old general relativity textbook, and there's too many crazy things out there. There is no actual ability to do any actual research on it that doesn't get into insanity. Well, thank you for the overview of of non-combustion uh, propulsion methods. Yeah, no problem. Time to do upcoming spaceflight events or event. Yeah, so just one launch from India, and that's a PSLV-DL. How come you guys always pronounce the dashes? Because <laughs> if not, it's PSLV-DL, but no, <laughs> it's written PSLV. I guess I could just pause and say DL. <laughs> yeah, so uh, PSLV-DL, uh, we don't know what DL stands for, but it is launching Microsat-R, and uh, that is a remote sensing satellite. And in this launch, will also test the use of a fourth stage, the PS4, that's being tested as an orbital platform for carrying out experiments. And it's carrying a student payload called Calumsat, K-A-L-A-M-Sat, Calumsat. This is launching on the 24th. 
Uh, launch window is 1730 UTC through 2130 UTC. So big launch window there. And that's launching from the Satish Dawan Space Center from the first launch pad. All right. So that's your upcoming spaceflight event. So it's time to deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.